Well, if you would be turning in your copies of Scripture to Romans chapter 8, we're in verses 31 to 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And hear this as it really is, God's very own word to us, his beloved people. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is in or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have a question for us as we ponder these verses. Who gets to say who you are? Who gets to say who you are? Maybe that seems to you like a strange question to ask in the light of our text, but here's why I think it's important. The person who has the right to define your identity also has the right to interpret how all the little pieces of your life and your circumstances fit together and whether they work out for good or for bad. The question, who am I, who am I most fundamentally, that's not a static thing. It's not something you just answer at one point in time and that's done. No, because you're not a static thing. It's constantly being asked anew as life moves along and new circumstances are faced. Now, think about it. If you have the right to answer the question, who am I, then you also have the responsibility to figure out how all the little pieces of your life and how all the little pieces of the circumstances that you face fit together. In our current cultural moment, that's sort of the way in which we are collectively answering the question, who gets the right to say who you are? We're we're saying, well, it must be fundamentally the individual. And that's causing a lot of stress and anxiety because we realize very quickly, well, if that's the case, I have to figure out how all the little pieces that make up me fit together. I have to try to figure out whether they work out for good or for bad. And we quickly find out, that's a monumental task. Ultimately, I can't do it. Think about how Paul sort of implicitly answered that question. We saw it last week in verse 26. Think about it. If the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words, what's the likelihood that you and I are going to be able to articulate what we truly need with any degree approaching adequacy? Not very likely. So we quickly find that, and we end up, at the best scenario, arrogant or confused and alone. Well, now, if other people then have the right to answer the question, who are you, then ultimately you have to look to other people as the ultimate interpreters of your life and your circumstances. Before we moved on to the very individualistic cultural moment, this is kind of how we answered that question. Well, most fundamentally, it must be other people who have the right to answer the question, who am I? And so we viewed ourselves as members of a particular tribe or culture or society, 
And that caused a lot of anxiety too. It ultimately didn't bring the relief that we so often longed for. We ended it up fearful and confused and alone. Think about how Jesus, if you want a, a summary, sort of a, a quick summary of how Jesus confronted the Pharisees in a sort of theological project as he wrestled with the Pharisees' misunderstanding and, and really abuse of the law, you can find it in Romans, or Matthew chapter 8, in which he says to the Pharisees, go and figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And really just a, a, a dart, to, a challenge to the commodified ways in which so much of Israelite society had degenerated into. And that's what you often find when you give the power to say who you are to other people. We, we, we quickly find we don't know how much to do other than commodification. So here's the foundational reality that undergirds the whole Bible. God gets to say who we are. God gets to say who you are. And I think the more fundamentally we understand this and really believe it, the brighter the gospel shines as news even better than we dared to believe. And I think that's important because last week we argued that fundamentally weak people are the only people who have the access to the riches of the comfort and encouragement of Romans 8, 26 through 30. And this week I'm going to argue that humble people, the kind of people who are willing to acknowledge that God alone is the ultimate interpreter of your life and the significance of all the little pieces that make it up, that alone is the thing that can be deeply and most lastingly encouraged by the truth of Romans 8, 31 to 39. Uh, a couple of years ago, Cameron and I audited a course at RTS taught by Dr. Jim Cofield. And it was a course on advanced pastoral counseling. And he pointed out something that has just sort of stuck with me ever since. He said, many of the issues that we face in life really come down to how we're answering one of three questions, or really all three of those questions together. And the questions are, who am I? Who is God? And most fundamentally, what do I think God thinks about me? And the answer of our text to those three questions is, you are unbreakably loved by your heavenly Father, who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. You are unbreakably loved. And I think that's the key truth of our text this morning. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live and serve and suffer in the unshakable confidence of the unbreakable love of God for us. The unshakable confidence of the unbreakable love of God for us. Well, let's see it in the text itself. Paul begins in verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, these things that Paul is speaking of are the glorious things he's speaking of in the previous verses. That is, God's having foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified us in verses 29 and 30. That is, the Spirit's help in our weaknesses. That's verses 26 and 28. That is, the patient hope that we have in the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's verses 18 and 25. That is, the Spirit's witness to our hearts that we really are, we really are the children of God and heirs with Jesus Christ of his glory. That's verses 16 and 17. That is, the Spirit's adoption of us into God's family that overcomes the spirit of slavery and fear and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. So verses 14 and 15, that is the Spirit's 
giving life to our mortal bodies and enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body that are opposed to life. That's verses 9 through 13. That is, the Spirit's work in us to give us life and peace and the ability to really and truly please God. This is 5 and 8. That's God's having sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of his good and perfect and holy law might be fulfilled in us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just three and four. Do you ever take a moment just to, just to ponder that? You are living your seemingly ordinary life. Like, we're pretty ordinary, right? And we are. <laughs> Sorry if that's news to you. <laughs> But, but we are. We're, we're ordinary people. And yet, the God who holds the stars in their place is looking over you, is fulfilled in them right now because they're walking in step with my spirit. I mean, wow. Wow. Do you ever take a moment just to ponder that? God looks over you right now and says, the righteous requirement of my law, fulfilled. And it's God's having spoken over us the verdict, no condemnation. No condemnation. So what will, he then, what will he then say to all these things? That's what Paul has in mind when he's talking about this. What then shall we say to all these things? This, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the reason this question is unanswerable is not because there are no things that are ever opposed to us. You and I know that there are often things that feel that they're opposed to us. So it's not that we can't ever feel that. It's not that we can never feel opposition The reason this question is unanswerable is because the one at the very center of reality was given up for us all. If you want just a quick refresher, go to Colossians 1 and and see the ways in which Paul magnifies the supremacy of the risen Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So whatever you care to mention, whatever you could possibly conceive of as existing, God, Jesus made it. And all things were made for him. And he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's the one, ultimately, who gets to interpret all the significance of all the little events of your life. Things that are going to happen today, the things that happened in your past, the things that are in your future. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything, he might be preeminent. And this one, the one who sits at the very center of reality, was given up for you. That's why this question is unanswerable. Not because we don't ever feel opposition, not because we don't sometimes feel that life can be heavy and weighty and the brokenness and the weight of sin leans upon us, but because the one at the very center of reality, the one for whom all things were created, was given up for you. Think about how Jesus most fundamentally revealed who he was to the Jews of his day. And they said, Give us a sign. And he said, Before Abraham was, I am. I am. I'm the the center of reality. I'm the one who gives existence its meaning. And because that's true, Paul can say to the Corinthians, don't boast in men. Don't boast in men because all things are yours. Paul or Apollos or Stephen or or, or, uh, Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or or the future, all things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God. I think the best way to sort of understand How this question is so unanswerable, it was given by C.S. Lewis, an analogy he gave. He said, in the present time, things just seem so hurly-burly sometimes and and so opposed to us, and we have difficulty really grasping the truth of this. But he observed that for everybody who rejects Christ and, and is finally and ultimately condemned and sentenced to hell because of it, even their best earthly joys, as they look back on them in retrospect, 
will sour in retrospect to the point that their earthly lives will seem to them to have been just another department of hell. But for for Christians, for all those who are saved by Christ, who recognize that he was given up for them and therefore nothing can ultimately oppose them, their earthly life will seem in retrospect to have been just the beginning of heaven. That's why this question is, is unanswerable. Paul continues in verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Once again, I think to feel the full force of the comfort of these questions, who shall bring any charge, who is to condemn, we need to ponder why Paul considers them to be unanswerable. I mean, after all, we could probably think of some answers, right? Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? We could think, well, Satan for one, the accuser after all, or, or maybe even spouses that we've profoundly hurt and wronged, or maybe friends we've wronged, maybe sometimes even our own hearts, which rise up and condemn us, our own consciences, sometimes even the police. I mean, if you were to leave this place this morning and you know, pulled over by Kennesaw PD for speeding, you couldn't turn to the officer and say, officer, who's to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I mean, you could try, but I don't think it'll work. I'm no lawyer, but... So, so we can think of lots of things that bring any charge against God's elect. So that's not why this question is unanswerable. Here's why those accusations don't ultimately count against you. It's not because sin doesn't matter. It's not because the wrongs we've done against our spouses or our friends aren't real or sometimes very grievous or sometimes cause deep and profound damage and pain that feels like it hangs in the air and we continue to feel the effects of it. It's not because your conscience is sometimes wrong when your heart condemns you. It's because of this, and this alone, the forgiveness you have in Christ is a forgiveness that was purchased for you by God himself, who justified you by giving up himself in the person and work of his son in order to bring glory for himself by bringing you into relationship with himself. The reason it's unanswerable is because it is God who justifies, and it is Christ Jesus who died. I think we have to get this real clear and real straight in our minds because your justification, your your forgiveness, is not the equivalent of the monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not even the equivalent of a presidential pardon. I think sometimes we can wrongly think of it that way. It's not a piece of paper that was signed by a distant judge. Your justification is God's coming to make his home with you. That's what Jesus said in John 14. And what does he do to make his home with you? He cleanses you by the blood of his son. He credits you with the righteousness of his son. He empowers you with the power of his own spirit. He draws you near to him. So so the dynamic of, of forgiveness in the moments of brokenness, that you really feel them, in the moments of sin, and the darts of the enemy, and sometimes your own conscience as it condemns you. The dynamic of forgiveness isn't in that moment, well, I must remember that I've got a piece of paper that says this doesn't matter. That's not the dynamic of forgiveness. It's this, God himself is with me now, speaking over me, saying the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember the blood of Abel? When Cain killed Abel and God said, behold, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And what was it crying? Vengeance reconciliation. This needs to be atoned for. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than that. So now in the moments of brokenness and sin, the weight that you feel, 
the wrong that you've done, it matters, but the blood of Christ speaks over that peace, reconciliation. The dynamic of forgiveness is Christ in you, with you, and the dynamic of forgiveness for those you've wronged is Christ in them and with them, in the middle of all the brokenness and pain that we sometimes feel so deeply, and Christ is there saying, behold, I make all things new. I will never leave you or forsake you. So it is God who justifies. It is Christ Jesus who died, who was raised, who is even now interceding for us. What are we to remember when we read this? We're to remember the mission of God, the goal that the gospel accomplishes, namely, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's spoken over and over and over again. in If you want a quick reference, the beginning, Exodus 6. Middle, Jeremiah 32. End, Revelation 21. Again and again. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The whole mission of the entire redemptive story. Think about how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 3. Whenever our hearts condemn us, and sometimes they do, our consciences feel the weight of sin, and our hearts rise up and condemn us, what's the answer? God is greater than our hearts. That that makes no sense unless the whole dynamic of justification, of no condemnation, the very essence of the gospel is the life of God in the soul of man. That's what Paul is arguing here. That's why this question is unanswerable. That is the only reason why they're unanswerable. So Paul continues, verses 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, why is this unanswerable? I mean, after all, bad things do happen to God's people. We know it. I mean, it's important to be clear about that. All the same things that happen to ordinary people and everybody else will happen to the people of God. We won't escape them. The gospel isn't just, well, some things will happen and some of them will be bad, but but mainly the the, the main trajectory of your life will be good. It's not the gospel. Because we live in a world where things fall apart. Our bodies, for one, we feel that. Uh, I heard this illustration from Tim Keller. Many of you have been to the beach this summer. Many of you are going to the beach this summer. The the sand that you enjoy so much, that feels so nice under your feet, used to be a mountain once. (laughs) It used to be a mountain. Things fall apart. So we sometimes have the view of Christianity that it means that things ought to go right. But there's no such saccharine, sentimental view in Christianity. Christianity doesn't promise us better circumstances than people who aren't Christians. It just doesn't. It promises us this, a better conquering life. The fact is, you are thrown into many battles, but you are always the conqueror. In fact, Paul says you're more than a conqueror. What is stressed here is the superlative character of the victory you have over evil. And we need the Spirit's help to feel this, because often I think we don't feel it. We sometimes, maybe most times, maybe even all the times, feel as if we just get by. We feel as though when we do escape sin, it's by the skin of our teeth. We feel as though we will be utterly shocked when we come to die that we wake up in heaven. But no, the design of your adversary, the devil, and all of his principalities and powers in this world, however strong for the moment they may appear to be, are always, always overthrown. 
Jesus doesn't spare you conflicts in this life, but in him you emerge from every single one of them completely and totally victorious. We need the Spirit's help to, to feel this, to feel the weight of it, but it's true. As John Murray says, we emerge from all these conflicts with the devil, with all the temptations that we feel in our own hearts, victorious, with all the laurels of conquest. You're like a conquering general over your enemy, the devil, and all the sin that still remains in the corruption of your own heart. As John Newton said, as he pondered these verses, he himself, no stranger to deep and profound brokenness and sin, and how that was reconciled in the gospel, he said, all shall work together for good. Everything that is needful, he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Be content to bear the cross. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Paul concludes, verses 38 to 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we come to the end of these unanswerable questions, finding that, yes, there can be no answer to them. Where then does Paul challenge us to look? Here and nowhere else, the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We do not fix our gaze, the, the mental preoccupation of our minds, not our speech, not our hopes, on death or life. Not on what is broken or dying in this world. We're, we're, we can be so good at that. Spotting the, the problems, spotting the conflicts. We don't fix our gaze on that. And we don't fix our gaze upon what seems strong and vibrant on the other hand. If we're of the maintainer temperament, good, solid, traditionalists, we, our confidence, our hopes, our expectations are not, they're not upon what has been, what we're trying to maintain. If, on the other hand, we are of the progressive temperament, good, solid, solid advancers after equity and justice, we, our confidence, our hopes, our expectations are not, they're not upon what we may yet achieve, not on life or death, but this alone, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not fix our gaze on angels or rulers, let the devil and all his hellish minions roar. Let ungodly rulers scheme and plan. From China to Russia to Washington, D.C., what is that to us? One little world, word shall tell them. We fix our gaze on this and this alone, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not even fix our gaze on things present or things to come, not the mistakes of your past nor the uncertainty of your future, but this alone the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not fix our gaze upon powers. Yes, we are weak. We feel it. But what is that to us? We look to this alone, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not fix our gaze upon height nor depth, all the many things, and we could list them endlessly, all the many things that are too big and too high for me and you. No, not on anything else you care to mention in all creation. We look to this and this alone, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is through Christ alone that we know God's love. Christ alone through whom no one can come against us. No one can bring any charge. No one can condemn. No one can separate us from his love. Here's how John Stott answers this deep challenge. And I think the word's very helpful for us. He says, Paul's answer to his own question, what then shall we say to these things? 
is to ask five more questions, to which there is no answer. He hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He, challenge, he challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Our confidence, hear this, hear this, brothers and sisters, our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail and fickle and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, deep and profound truths of this to our lives. Here's a question for us, I think, as we, we ponder these things. What are some particular circumstances that you've walked through that seemed as though they might separate you from God's love? We've all been there. We've all faced things that seem so big and momentous, whether it's our own sin, often that can do it, whether it's challenges to our, our faith in him and his goodness, deep medical crises, uh, relational difficulties, family troubles, many things conspire to work against our conviction, our, our certainty in the truth that God loves us. So what are some particular circumstances you walked through that seemed as though they might separate you from God's love? And as you ponder that, ponder this also. How did the Spirit assure you of God's unbreakable love for you? I'm thinking here of particular ways that he's done it. Again, this is not too different than the question we often ask each other, how's God been good? It's really just a deeper dive into that, if you think about it. But how's he done it? What are some ways in which the Spirit has reminded you of God's unbreakable love for you, of the truth of the gospel, of who you really are, appearances notwithstanding, the deep weight and shame you sometimes feel notwithstanding? How has the Spirit reminded you that you are more than a conqueror through the gospel, that God's love for you is an unbreakable love and can never be shaken? Well, what does Romans 8, 31-39 teach us? Simply this. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live, serve, and suffer in the unshakable confidence of the unbreakable love of God for us.